I'm glad you're here. What I want to do today, we've spoken about the stranger, the other, in the first three classes, uh, from biblical sources, last time from rabbinic sources, um, and the message is clear. Uh, and then there's this, since we called this class the other, we're not going to be overtly political today, though there's always political, political, you know what I mean, we've been talking about how to treat the foreigner. Um, but there is this source I mentioned last week about Rabbi Elisha Benabuya, who became an apostate and is referred to in the uh, rabbinic literature as acher, which means the other. other, the other. That's his, that's his, uh, um, I just learned, sobriquet, so, something like that. Yes. Um, we were just, Nomi and I were just discussing what the heck that meant. Um, <laughs> and uh, the stories about Acher are very stylized, which leads me to read them not as historical accounts, but as um, teaching tales, or you know, or even myth, sort of uh, legends having that sort of folk folk legends, myths having a sort of shape to them that repeats, and and they're very emotional um, and compelling because uh, Rabbi Meir is his student and friend. And when every, in the Talmudic narrative, when everyone else has abandoned Acher, Elisha ben Abuya, Rabbi Meir continues to visit with him. Um, what period are we talking We're about? We're talking about the early 2nd century. Oh. Uh, we're, in the, we're in the time of Rabbi Akiva. Sometime, so we're talking about somewhere on the year 100 to 130, something like that. Um, and um, so, as I and said, one hundred and thirty-two was the revolt. Right. Of the so Rabbi Akiva was was executed by the Romans along with uh, nine other leading rabbis as a result of their support of the Bar Kokhba rebellion in one thirty-five. And so we know that that's the end date of these stories, and uh, and uh, so that's the that's the time period we're in here. These are the first generations of sages after the temple is destroyed. Um, and so there they are. So picture that. They are living under Roman rule. Jerusalem is destroyed. And what they call Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, which was what the Romans um, inherited from the previous uh, uh, regime, the, the Hellenistic regime, the Romans absorbed that, Greek culture was predominant, and Jewish culture was under great duress. Okay, that's, that's why at Passover, for example, um, when we read that passage about the five rabbis at B'nai Brak who spend the night uh, discussing the Exodus until in the morning their students have to come you're still, it's time for the morning Shema, and they've been Im immersed in discussing it all night long. Uh, when the dawn broke, yeah. The story of that is in that book, The Orchard. So, Ellen, so the, um, 
there's many interpretations of this story. Some say that these rabbis were having a Seder in the attic of so-and-so's house, which is what it says, because they were in hiding. And, and then some say they were discussing liberation, and so they were actually plotting, and were in hiding, plotting all night. It's an interesting, it doesn't say that per se, but because of the time frame and what's going on, uh, it, it, might, it might certainly have political overtones. Um, there was a, a, the, a novel was written, which many of you are familiar with, called As a Driven Leaf by Rabbi Milton Steinberg in 1939, where he took all of these legends and stories and wove them into a novel about the rabbis of this period because, hi, hi Libby. The rabbis of this period because Um, oh, make yourself comfortable. Libby's performing a play tonight for us. A magnificent play. A magnificent play. Um, oh, so As a Driven Leaf. As a Driven Leaf was one of Ira Eisenstein's, Rabbi Ira Eisenstein's favorite books because Milton Steinberg, the author, was his dear friend and sort of big brother in the conservative movement. And Milton Steinberg died of a heart attack and he was only 46 years old. Ira always missed him. That's just, uh, so, uh, so that book is wonderful as a driven leaf. And then there's a brand new book that takes the same set of tales that Ellen just read by an Israeli author called The Orchard. And I'll tell you, we're gonna see why it's called The Orchard when we look at the first, the first reading. And you recommend that book? It, it, it tells the story of Akiva's life, but from his wife's point of view. Oh. Yes, yes, it's a perfect book for you. Somebody did it. And, did it. and um, how she met him and how she encouraged him to go to school and how they lived after her father disowned her. And all the characters from this early part of the Talmud are, are there, including the arguments between who was going to prevail, the school of, of uh, Shammai or the school of Hillel, and the first Seder at B'nai Brak, and why they were in B'nai Brak in the first place, and all the personalities, and uh, Rabbi Yishmael, the, the handsome one, and Rabbi Joshua, the homely one, and right. somebody's related is, is uh, uh, Paul of Tar Saul of Tarsus, his nephew, because um, his mother was Paul's brother. I want to read this. And... Um, so think about all the everything that lends this. Do you mind if I interrupt? Everything that wrote it. Yochi Brandes, B R A N D E S. Thank you. It's called The Orchard. Called The Orchard. And if you get it on Kindle, I paid five ninety-eight, but yesterday they put out that you could get it for a limited time for nothing. So good luck. The Orchard. Yochi Brandes. Part H. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this period of time in Jewish history, along with the scraps of historical things we know and, and the massive number of stories there are about the rabbis, each one who has a vivid personality, and the conflict inherent in that time between uh, the, uh, the, the, 
the enticement to just mix in with the Roman Empire and the desire to keep one's people's integrity and it's just a very dramatic, um, easy to dramatize and I'm looking forward to reading that novel. So, so back to Acher, Elisha ben Avuya. Um, there is one story, there are many stories, sorry, there are numerous stories that describe what caused Elisha ben Avuya to lose his faith and thereby count him, thereby exit the Jewish community and uh, hang around the edges. The most famous story is this one, but again, just the fact that we're going to see like four different stories tells you again, this is not about history. This is about the internal reasons why someone would lose their faith and excommunicate themselves. It, you know what I mean? And that's what we're looking at about, since it's about the other. So we're not doing a political thing today at all. We're doing this, this, uh, these Jewish stories. And, I, and you really should wrap your storytelling mind around them. Some of you may be familiar with it. Four entered the Pardes. Okay, Pardes, it comes from the original uh, Persian word, paradise is the same word. Because the orchard, is, so it's like a bustan, it's like a enclosed garden, it's a, um, the Garden of Eden might be a Pardes. It's an interesting word because pardes, which means orchard, also is the root of the word for paradise. So I'm just mentioning that because we are not in the realm of, we're in that realm here with this story. Four entered the pardes. What does that mean? So we already, like, I can't tell you how many, what, bottles of ink have been spent on, on this question over the last 2,000 years. Um, and the pardes, the orchard, seems to be, based on what we know, a place of, of mystical ascent. It's an uh, altered state. It's um, when the, we know that these rabbis from other, other um, oh, this is for Steve. Sure. From other sources, uh, other stories in the Talmud, we know that these rabbis spent time in, in uh, um, ecstatic, ecstatic contemplation. Like there's a story about Ben, ben uh, Azai who the ra they go and look at him and there are per rings of fire dancing around him and they ask him, what's going on? He says, oh, I'm... I'm linking verses from Torah and prophets and this and that and they're all the you know he's just in an he's he's in a, a an ecstatic 
state uh, contemplating the Torah. These are common stories about these guys. So we also have stories about them going up to, going down to the Merkava. Uh, they're called Yordei Merkava. They go, they want to witness the divine chariot. And they describe some techniques that they use in order to, to um, uh, move into this other state of consciousness where they might go through the seven levels of heaven and then witness the divine chariot. So, you know, um, in, in addition to being legal scholars and teachers and political activists, and these rabbis were spiritual adepts and spiritual seekers. Okay, so, and there's all kinds of stories about them. And that's what the Pardes represents. In later Jewish thought, not contemporaneous with this, Pardes gets made into an acronym for the levels of Torah interpretation. Pshat. Pay of Pardes is the Pshat, which means the plain meaning of the text. The Resh means Remez, which is the allegorical meaning of the text. The Dalit is Drash, which is the level where you start interpreting by connecting all the different verses from all over the Torah. And then the Samach is for Sod, which means the esoteric, the secret, where everything is the name of God, right? That's what happens at the esoteric level, is, is basically you're not just looking at the letters, you're looking at the spaces between the letters and the crowns on the letters, and in contemplating the letters and their multiple meanings, you just ascend to beyond, uh, beyond the place where there is separation because everything is interconnected. That place of Sod, the highest level of Pardes in the Jewish tradition, is also a place where you lose your in selfhood, right? Because that's like in other mystical traditions, that's the place where you don't, you don't exist anymore, you merge. Right? And that's considered the, the level of Sod. So anybody who goes to that level is at great risk because your co coherent conscious energy can simply merge and disperse into the great energy. It's also a place where if there are no boundaries and you finally reach that mystical uh, ecstasy where there are no boundaries, then what's the point down here, right? And there are many, many, many traditions about mystical ascents where people come back. It's like a bad LSD trip, right? I mean, that's the most, the most basic way to describe it. It's like turn on, tune in, drop out. You drop out because everything you thought was, uh, real, was the most important thing isn't anymore. And so how, what kind of person, what kind of person do you need to be, what kind of faith do you need to have in order to make this ascent and come out whole, right? And this is, appears to be what this tale is about. It appears to be, though there are many other interpretations. Um, and so I think that's a good introduction. So four entered the Pardes, and they are Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, that's all he named him as, and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, we don't know what this means, by the way. Rabbi Akiva, but we can feel what it means, all right? Rabbi Akiva said to them, 
When you draw near to the pure marble, don't say water, water. For it is written, one who speaks falsehoods is unable to stand before my eyes. What so, does that mean? Right. So you have to imagine, right. You have to imagine people who have a system like the Tibetan Buddhists or like the uh, Hindus or like Christian mystics who have like um, a kind of map for ascending through different spiritual states. And apparently in their map, there is this marble. Is it marble? Is it water? I don't know. I don't know, but you weren't there. I, I wasn't there. And if I went there, I might not experience it that way because all of these metaphors are culturally uh, mediated, right? Uh, so where one person sees dragons, when they encounter certain energy, they come back and they say, the, the, the divine throne was protected by dragons, you can't go there. Someone else might say fire, someone else might have a completely different experience. These are realms of consciousness and experience. So I don't know what this means. But Rabbi Ak the point is, Rabbi Ak someone else here might know what this means because they might have been there. I'm serious. You know, we have members of our congregation who are more mystically inclined, who have usually unbidden, had like consciousness breaks where, where um, I, was talk I was talking to Bob Berman, the astronomer. Uh, uh, some of you might know Bob, and he's told this story publicly, so it's, it's fine. He, and, and he said there was a period of time in his early 20s. He's not a religious man, like, can't get him in here. But um, where for about three weeks, everything was glowing and everything was one. And when the experience, he was in ecstasy. He didn't search for it. And when the experience finally started to fade away, it changed him forever. That's the kind of experience we're, we're talking about. And many religious traditions have, have worked hard to create a roadmap, as it were, uh, for how to meditate, for what to say, for what to chant, for what, how your inner state needs to be, so that many spiritual and mystical traditions, their goal is to access these states of oneness, right? So that means that when we say the Shema, we understand it on, the, which is Hero Israel, Adonai or God, Adonai is one. You, in Jewish terms, you read it according to pardes. What's its, what's its physical meaning? What, you know, what's its allegorical meaning? What's its, how can you interpret this? And then there's another level. Everything is one. And you just experience that. You follow what I'm saying? All of those levels are true. And that's how, and, and there are those among us for whom that ascent to that, what we consider to be the highest level or the deepest level, um, is a lifelong quest. That's what mysticism is. That's really what mysticism is. Um, so I don't know what the pure marble is. But I know that Rabbi Akiva is the adept. He's the one who knows what to tell his colleagues. That's what's important in here. There's something Rabbi Akiva gets. And, uh, and here's what happened. Ben Azai glimpsed and died. About him, scripture says, precious in Hashem's eyes is the death of the pious. Don't worry so much about the proof texts. That's the way they talk. 
Ben Azai glimpsed at what? The, the marble, the unity, the beyond the marble even. Um, and he died. Ben Zoma glimpsed and lost his mind. About him, scripture says, this is an interesting quote, you found honey. Eat just enough to satisfy yourself, lest you become full and throw it up. So something about, he wasn't ready either. Acher cut the saplings. Now that's a metaphor that we know about. It means that, it, it means his faith was uprooted. He lost his faith. Um, and Rabbi Akiva only exited bishalom. Only Rabbi Akiva exited in peace. But shalom doesn't just mean peace. Remember what else it means? Complete. Completeness, wholeness, right? Unharmed. It's an intense story, isn't it? And that's all we have, by the way. That's the story. It, it's, a, it's such an invitation to uh, tell more stories. That's how I feel about it. Um, so, one of the theories about how Rabbi Elisha ben Avuya, a very prominent, respected, rabbinic thinker and leader of that generation, lost his faith and became the other, was that something about this mystical ascent uprooted his belief that doing the mitzvahs, that living as a Jew, according to Jewish law, meant anything. Do you follow what I'm saying? How do you buy into, how do we buy into this, that this is so important? And then he goes and gets his mind blown, and he comes back and he says, I don't know why I'm doing all this stuff. It's like, so that's the main theory about, uh, about that, that it was a mystical vision that caused him to question why we have to do all this stuff as Jews. Something that as a rabbi, he is 100% committed to. That's his job, is to teach Jewish practice and law and to adjudicate it. And so some say he lost his faith that way and became the other. Isn't that fascinating? Thoughts, questions, comments, anybody? Because I'm ready to show you the next page, too. I love that story. Here. We sure could. I mean, there's a lot to play around with there. I know. That's why I love it so much. <laughs> um, and uh, and I guess because my purpose in this class is not to explore that. Right. Uh, we'll go on and look at some of the other stories about him. But that's the most famous one about what happened to Acher. Now, these are longer stories. Uh, from um, from the Talmud. I, I have one question. Yeah. I'm sorry, you may have covered it when I came in late. The, so the, the word pardes yeah. is the, um, it, it's sometimes translated as garden. Right? Orchard. Or, orchard. All right, you may have covered it. Um, yeah, but I'll repeat it. Okay, by sorry. the way, there's a new novel by an Israeli novelist named Yochi Brandis called uh -huh. The Orchard. Okay. which Ellen just finished, which I'm going to really get. Really good. Uh -huh. where, which tells all these stories and then weaves her own narrative okay. out of them. Okay. So, pardes means orchard, but it also comes from the Persian word for paradise. Uh, okay. uh, so it's not your average orchard. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, come with me to the orchard right. means more than let's go pick some apples. From, yeah. from a Jewish perspective, the imagery comes from this passage. Mm -hmm. right, yeah. Right, they're in an orchard, and he's cutting the saplings. I never thought about that. So, the question... Oh, well, that, that's what I was thinking. Um, this is for Ruth. So, if he did that, that not only is he's lost his faith, but is he trying to destroy it for Is he trying to destroy it for others by cutting the saplings? Yeah. Again, all of this is our playing with an, a, a very brief phrase that he cut the saplings. Um, what is the uh, Hebrew? Yeah. Um, is he cutting it? Does that prevent other people also? Or is, he just, are we, or is this a completely metaphorical journey where he's cutting his own, he's, he's cutting himself, own self off at the, it could be, but like I said, there is not a correct interpretation of this. So I like that. That's another story. What was Acher doing? In the other stories about Acher, he doesn't seem to be interested in leading anyone else away. So, th so you'll, you'll see. Let's read some of these. Um, but I actually want to say, uh, start, hold on. I want to find the other stories that talk about how he lost his faith. Um, oh, turn the page over to 244. On the right-hand column, and uh, look at uh, the next-to-last paragraph, which says, what did Acher see that made him go wrong? Do you see that, everybody? Oh, yes. It is said that once, while sitting and studying in the valley of Ginosar, he saw a man climb to the top of a palm tree on the Sabbath, take the mother bird with the young, and descend in safety. At the end of the Sabbath, he saw another man climb to the top of the same palm tree and take the young, but let the mother go free. As he descended, a snake bit him, and he died. Elisha exclaimed, It is written in Deuteronomy, Let the mother go and take only the young, that you may fare well and have a long life. Where is the well-being of this man? And where is the prolonging of his life? Let's pause right there. Okay, so very few mitzvot, in fact only two, in the whole Torah, as far as I know, say, do this mitzvah so that your days will be long upon the earth, so that you'll live long. One is honor your mother and father. The other is, if you see a mother bird and it's young in a tree, take the eggs or the young and shoo the mother away. Um, uh, and it doesn't explain why, but it seems to have to do with, either, with both, otherwise there won't be more eggs next year, or, you know, cr preventing cruelty, but you need to feed yourself. It's not clear, but... The rabbis talk about this commandment a lot. Or take, sh shoo the mother away first 
So she doesn't see Right, it says, shoo the mother away first, and then take the eggs, so that you may have a long life. So this is one of the few commandments that says there's a literal consequence to fulfilling this mitzvah. So um, uh, it becomes the perfect um, um, narrative tool for this story because he sees somebody on the Sabbath, which is illegal, climb a tree, take the mother and young, and go down. Nothing happens. He sees this other guy, climb the tree, wait till the Sabbath is over, climb the tree, shoo away the mother, take the young, come down, and a snake bites him and dies. And he is known to have said, and it doesn't say it in this version, there is no judgment and there is no judge. Right? So, that's a different, very different explanation of how he lost his faith. So here was someone with, but it's going to be related as, you, when, as we keep talking about Rabbi Akiva. Um, here was someone somehow whose faith was immature, uh, literal, unrealistic, uh, and who when that system, literal system, was not fulfilled, fell to pieces, couldn't do it. Because, here's the parenthesis, Acher was unaware how Rabbi Akiva had explained it, namely, that you may fare well in the world to come, which is wholly good, and have a long life in the world whose length (coughs) is without end. Akiva's take on all this stuff was, we don't understand. (laughs) But I I love God anyway. That's basically Akiva. And Akiva's the Jewish sage about whom stories are told, such as something bad happens to him, and he says, oh, this must be for the good. And something good happens to him, and he says, well, this must be also for the good. And then something bad happens to him, and he says, this must also be for the good. Y- you understand what I'm saying? It's like all those other, every, every culture seems to have a motif like that. Um, and because um, if this hadn't happened, then this good thing couldn't have happened. And so Akiva has this, incredibly broad perspective on, on life. He's kind of like, I call it, I call what he, his stories like crazy wisdom. Like they'll be walking up on the Temple Mount and all they see are jackals running among the ruins and they all start crying because this is right after the temple was destroyed and Akiva starts laughing. He said, Akiva, you lost your mind. That's what the Hebrew says. And he says, no, if it was destroyed, it'll be rebuilt. I'm rejoicing. Like, can you start to see why, when you read the stories of Akiva, why he's the one who could come out of this pardes in one piece? Because he wasn't looking for, to un, for, in this sort of human frame, to have it all fit together, right? Like, he wasn't, he wasn't being the, the jury and the judge on the universe, um, uh, one of his most famous sayings in Pirkei Avot is, um, free will is granted, everything is preordained, and free will is granted. Yeah. End of saying. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, but I get it. Yeah. Right? It's like, it depends on your point of view. And that's the point, mm-hmm. is that we don't get to have the cosmic point of view. Mm-hmm. We only get little, 
glimpses of it. We're like tiny little expressions of the cosmos. For us to assume that we get it all is ridiculous and leads to our own uh, loss of faith and connection. But if we understand that we're just a temporary expression of the universe, then from one perspective, everything's preordained. But from this perspective, I have choices. And they're both true. So that's Akiva, right? He doesn't need it to be all tied up with the bow. Um, but it seems Akher maybe needed that. Uh, or that's what this story tells about how he lost his face. I just find these different accounts to be fascinating. Um, then there's one, mo one more that kind of emphasizes this. There is no justice and there is no judge. Some say Elisha became a heretic when he saw a pig dragging along in its mouth Rabbi Chutzpit, the interpreter's tongue. Okay, well, this is the way they do things. You know, they, the Talmud says, that's why these aren't history. The Talmud, I remember reading about, uh, studying about the laws of fasting on Yom Kippur in the Talmud. And they say, but if a pregnant woman has to have pork on Yom Kippur, you have to give it to her because her health is at risk. Right? So, you know, that's what they're doing. They're like giving you like the uh, ultimate, <laughs> ultimate example. So that's what this is doing here, too. That's what Jerome's grandmother, whenever he was sick, she used to sneak bacon into the house <laughs> to give him bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was health benefits. <laughs> Literally, it's their health benefits. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's lived a long time. <laughs> yeah, it must have been good. <laughs> How about to tell him about the sighting? <laughs> so the last paragraph says, this is, it, these are just to, to describe what it means for a, a, um, a, a Torah, a mitzvah-abiding Jew to lose their faith. Some say that Elisha became a heretic when he saw a pig dragging along its mouth, Rabbi Chutzpah, the interpreter's tongue. He said then, the tongue from which pearls of purest ray used to come forth is to lick the dust, and immediately he resolved to sin. It's like, and, and he went out, and spying a harlot, he beckoned to her. And she asked, aren't you Elisha Benavuya? And it was the Sabbath. And so you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And he pulled a radish out of a furrow, something you're absolutely forbidden to do on Shabbat. And he gave it to her. So she said, he is clearly acher. He's clearly gone over another. It's so dramatic. Even the even the, the harlot recognizes. So dramatic. That's what I, I just, uh, uh, I feel so bad. I feel for him. Um, he's, um, it's, I mean, in much less dramatic terms, it's like the kid who goes to yeshiva and then finally goes and eats a cheeseburger and lightning doesn't strike. You, you know, we've all had that experience at some point in our growing up, whether it was Jewish laws or some other transgression that we thought was going to make us irredeemable. And this is a phase, for me, this is a phase of um, moral and ethical and spiritual development. Right? Because then once you realize that lightning isn't going to strike, many people just stay at the, stay at kind of what a, the childhood level where there's a, 
a king or a heavenly father, and you know, and it makes life fairly straightforward in a certain way. But what if you grow out of that phase and realize lightning isn't striking, and every and all your concrete understanding of of reward and punishment is blown out of the water. Then people lose their faith. Many people never come back. They blow it off. They say, God, what a bunch of bullshit. I can't believe I was raised with that stuff. And then there's another developmental level where you start to recognize that it's a great mystery and that these religious expressions are paths to encounter, to grapple with, to wrestle with, to acknowledge, to ingest the mystery. And you come to an adult, what I would call a mature faith. I didn't invent that. This is like, lots been written about this. Um, and to come to that mature faith, it's like at the... On Sunday, some of us were at the Episcopal Church uh, in 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 Kingston, and I was I gave the I gave the sermon, and it was a high church Episcopalian thing. It was like bells and processions, and I and I was seated up on the uh, not the bema, but in the what they call the sanctuary, because that's the part that no lay people can come into. They only come up to the railing to receive the communion. The whole thing I was like. Uh, I was I was inside the mystery, okay, and I've talked to Christian friends for whom taking communion, where you eat the wafer and drink the wine, and this is my body and this is my blood, is a transformative mystery. Um, they know it's not literal, but it speaks to them, and they and it means so much. And and watching Father Frank do the communion ceremony with incredible intention. I mean, I was right next to him. It's like, it was, he, it was profound. Um, I was just sort of getting it. I was moved by it. Does that make sense? And um, that was my most recent experience of, I know Frank doesn't think that this is literally the body of Christ and literally the blood of Christ. And yet, he's embraced it as a, as a metaphor, as a ritual, not intellectually, it was his whole body. Um, it was a great experience. I was really glad to witness it up close, given that race is a Jew. I don't know about for each of you how it went, but I wasn't even supposed to enter a church, you know, because they, were, they had like icons in there. And besides, those were Christians. Well, I wasn't even supposed to enter a synagogue, so. (laughs) (laughs) But I had a a similar experience at the Ars Corrales concert, which was joined about Lincoln uh, Sunday, which was were you there? Which was joined by a Baptist um, congregation, singers of spirituals. A gospel choir. Uh, Yeah, and I was moved by the sense that they're really feeling it. Mm There, I was feeling they're feeling it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was something, you know. Somehow there were maybe 13 of them and 60 of the other people, but what a sound came from them and what spirit. Right. It was very much the same thing. That's right. So what I'm saying is that it's possible to have a mature faith that doesn't require tit for tat 
uh, um, accountability, you know, on each of our actions because you come to a different place of understanding that religion is actually, organized religion is actually supposed to have us taste that other realm, right? Uh, the realm in the orchard. I taste it and then bring the fruits of that, that move, how you felt moved, how I felt moved, bring the fruits of that back into our lives. And um, so, yeah, that expresses it clearly. One, two, three, yeah. Ellen first. It strikes me that um, to give himself this name is rather than just another name, is still relating himself to what he left. So that he hasn't really left it. He's in relation to That's it. That's right. He's in relation to it. And that makes me think of what we call the wicked child in the Passover Seder. He's at the Seder. And then he says, remember the quote? What does all this mean to you? To you and not to him. For he has cut himself off from the community. And yet he's still sitting there. Mm-hmm. And that's true about these stories. Thank you. Uh, Gail? Um, I don't know. I guess these stories date from the same time. A little later, usually. They're usually a couple centuries later. Well, the ones on this page don't feel to me as if they really are doing justice to him at all. He was a renowned rabbi. He was part of this group. I can't believe he was that simple-minded. Okay? They're trying to explain why he lost his faith. And my, my, my own best guess at this is that he lost his faith precisely because of the kind of experience beyond what you're describing, but beyond it. He was there and he got it, that any particular path is only a path. Right. And no path is necessarily better than another if it gets you there. That is Lots another... paths get you there. So why should I come down and necessarily stick with Jewish mm-hmm. ritual and law kind of Mm-hmm. I remember a long time ago being at one of the interfaith Thanksgivings, and it was at the Tibetan Center, and I was standing with, I came up to a group of non-Jewish friends who had been coming to my Torah meditation group. Yeah. And I said, listen, I want to stand with you guys because you guys are my kin, <laughs> you know? And that's what it felt like. And, you know, I mean, right, so to be, so I think, as you said for yourself even, but, you know, for many of us, we may choose to remain or even become more observant Jews because the path now speaks to us more strongly in, in getting us there. Yeah. But we can, it's a choice then. And I could imagine him saying, why do all of that, particularly in that era? That's right. Where, where it was either you were, you were very orthodox. I mean, there wasn't... I want to, no, there was just, <laughs> I, I want to address that by looking again at the back of this page. Look at the paragraph right above the, 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 the third one down. This is another thing that they speculate about Achir. It is also said of him of Achir that Greek song did not cease from his mouth and that whenever he rose to leave the house of study, many heretical books would fall out of his lap. Here's a whole other picture, which in As a Driven Leaf, uh, the book by Milton Steinberg, this is the one he takes as he was just insatiable and he starts reading Greek philosophy and he's completely blown away and enamored by it. Why not? Many Jews were falling away from the incredible appeal of Greek thought and philosophy and culture. 
Um, so yes, that's a different approach. Is that he looked, he read, he just wanted to know everything, and he said, I can't keep doing this. So it becomes a critique of the rigidness of rabbinic boundaries uh, that he couldn't, couldn't deal with. And I'm saying it more than that, is that the flooded story, which always feels like the original story, is really raising a question of what does it mean when you get to that awareness that whatever we mean by God, God doesn't care which path you take. Right, right. Once you, he, once, you, once you recognize that the God you thought was just yours right. is everybody's, how then do you choose your path again right. after that? And that's more than an intellectual. That's a deep... Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. yeah right. okay. I hear you, I hear you. Mm-hmm. Ruth, what did you want to say? Um, this goes back to that, that hair story about the... And, and there's this contemporary secular story that really surprised got so much attention of this one guy who, when Trump won the election, cut off all media exposure for himself. Yes. It's been coming out in the Times feed well, a lot, like a week ago. It was a big article he, in the Times. Yeah, got the yeah. Oh, no, no, that's not right. He's decided only to read the print newspaper. No, that's different from somebody else. Oh, this is a different story? <laughs> so there's a man in... Whereas he was Wisconsin, Illinois. Yeah. Oh, so, so. He's retired from his business. <clears throat> Lives alone. And he's not paying attention to the news at all. And he's so any, great lengths. Anybody yeah. he talks to knows, and not to mention anything about. So, how does that relate events. to what we're talking about? Right? So, it's kind of like he is, had this reactive, right? He's uh. so reactive to this. Mm-hmm. That he kind of is stuck. Uh-huh. To cut yourself off means to be right imprisoned in- by <laughs> everything that you're avoiding. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's kind of the key total. You know, for somebody who a secular example of it, it's very interesting. Oh, interesting, interesting. Way over the top, you know. Wow, wow, wow. Like a huge amount of attention. It's been coming in the Times. Wow. So, all, I guess what I get from these, one of the things I get from these different stories is what an emotional, um, this is, it's very easy to relate to Alicia Benavuya through these stories for me. It's like, what a struggle he's going through. Yeah. Um, and, and he becomes known as the other. So I want to get back to, you know, what an interesting name to lose your identity and just be known as the other. And that's a different than what we've been talking about, the other as this, the, you know, the immigrant or the stranger or the newcomer. Somebody who defines themselves as other and is, how do you treat them? So then, that's a good introduction to look at Rabbi Meir's stories, which is turn the page over again. Because Rabbi Meir, who is like an, a luminary, and that's a good pun because his name means enlightened. It says his original name was Rabbi Nehorai, but uh, everyone knew him as Rabbi Meir because he brought so much light. Um, and his wife, by the way, is Bruria, the most, the, the, basically the only woman in the Talmud who gets a leading role um, and who tells Rabbi Meir what's what over and over again in, with great wisdom. Okay. Rabbi Meir was seated in the house of study in Tiberias on the Sabbath. Okay, Tiberias, Ginosar. Ginosar is like right next to Tiberias. They're all on the Sea of Galilee. Um, 
And this was where, after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish community center moved to the Galilee. Um, and uh, uh, so Rabbi Meir was seated in the house of study in Tiberias on the Sabbath, expounding, meaning teaching Torah, or giving a, giving a teaching, while his teacher Elisha, Elisha ben Avuya, was passing through the marketplace astride his horse. Okay, again, we don't know if this ever happened. This is a teaching tale. So there's Rabbi Meir giving a sermon on Shabbos in the synagogue, and his teacher goes riding past on a horse. You don't ride a horse on the Sabbath. That's like, what? <laughs> People came by and told Rabbi Meir, look, your teacher Elisha is here riding through the marketplace. Rabbi Meir interrupted his expounding and went out to him. He, he stops his talk and he goes out to his teacher. And Elisha asked, what verse have you been expounding today? Rabbi Meir said, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. And Elisha said, what did you say about it? And Rabbi Meir said, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He doubled his possessions, which is how, what happens in Job. At the beginning, he, everything, all this miserable stuff happens to him. At the end, God restores his fortunes and more. Uh, he doubled his possessions. Uh, and Elisha said, Alas for those who are gone and are no more. Your teacher Akiva would not have spoken thus. He would have construed these words, The Lord blessed the latter end of Job because of the beginning, because of the observance of precepts and good deeds that had been Job's at the beginning. Okay, let's pause there. The details of the argument are less important, or maybe they're not. But before we get to the details of the argument, which I haven't plumbed, um, the whole scene is so amazing that Meir, the, the, the great Rabbi Meir, stops his sermon, goes out to talk to Elisha, who's on a horse, on Shabbat, in the marketplace, and they start talking Torah. What were you teaching in there? And, and they're, so they're still connected. That's why As Driven Leaf is such a good book, because this, this, these guys are the central characters, and uh, it's so, I don't know, it's, it's amazing. He won't excommunicate his teacher. And they discuss. And Rabbi Meir, in this one, I think, gives a literal answer to uh, the verse about Job, that he doubled his possessions. And Elisha says, ugh, Akiva would never have accepted that as an explanation. Our teacher, Akiva. Uh, he, he would have interpreted more um, uh, uh, metaphorically. Um, because it was of good deeds and mitzvahs. And he was given double that. And then uh, the verses go on with a long, this line, this whole page is them talking Torah. And uh, uh, each time, just lies in a folktale folk tale motif, Alicia says, alas for those who are gone and no more, your teacher Akiva would not have interpreted it this way. And then he gives an interpretation. Um, and uh, I'm just going to go down, because I'm not sure I want to read all these before we get to the, to the punchline. We might lose our way. Um, like no, let's read it. Let's read it. What? We might lose our way like Alicia. <laughs> <laughs> let's read through it. 
and get a feel for it. What other verse did you expound, Alicia asked. Rabbi Meir said, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Same with the Job verse. It's like better at the end than the beginning. Alicia, what did you say about it? Rabbi Meir, well, you have a man who acquired merchandise in his youth and sustained a loss, but in his old age makes a profit from it. In other words, you don't, you don't, just because you sustained a loss, you don't necessarily just drop your investment. Or you have a man who learned Torah in his youth and forgot it, but it comes back to him in his old age. He's like reaching out to Alicia. Alicia says, oh, alas for those who are gone and not, are no more. Your teacher Akiva would not have spoken thus. He would have construed it, good is the end of a thing from the beginning. Oh, I see. Alicia in each of these verses is trying to get, um, I mean, Mayer is trying to get his teacher to come back. He'll have double his possessions. He'll remember what he forgot. He'll, okay, that's what he's doing. Mayer's trying to convince him with Torah verses to come back. Um, and uh, Alicia says, your teacher Akiva would not have spoken thus. He would have construed it, good is the end of a thing from the beginning, when it is good from its beginning. So it happened with me. He's talking about himself. Aviyah, my father, was one of the notables of Jerusalem. When he was arranging for my super circumcision, he invited all the notables of Jerusalem, among them Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Joshua. After they had eaten and drunk, they began to clap their hands and dance. Some of the notables sang songs and others composed alphabetical acrostics. Rabbi, it's a Jewish party. <laughs> Rabbi Eliezer. <laughs> Rabbi Eliezer said to Rabbi Joshua, no, actually they're rapping. They're extempor- yes, they're extemporaneously making up songs. That's true. Um, they began with subjects, they're riffing. This is jazz. This is cool. They began with subjects connected with the five books of Moses, then with the prophets, and after that with the writings. And fire came down from heaven and surrounded them. At which Avuya, my father, said to them, My masters, have you come to set my house afire over me? And they replied, God forbid, we were merely sitting and stringing words of Torah. Then from the Torah we went on to the prophets, and from the prophets to the writings. The words were as joyful as when they were given at Sinai. For when originally given at Sinai, they were given in the midst of fire. As it said, the mountain burned with fire onto the heart of heaven. Elated, my father Avuya remarked, My masters, since the power of Torah is so great, if this child stays alive for me, I will dedicate him to the Torah. And now here's the, that's an amazing story. But Avuya says, Elisha ben Avuya says, but because the intent of my father's resolve was not for the sake of heaven, my study of the Torah did not endure with me. Because, did you follow that? Did you get that, everybody? It, in in uh, the, one of the precepts of rabbinic Judaism is you have to study Torah without any ego, without any intent of reward, without, um, uh, uh, because it's spiritual, it's a spiritual quest. Listen, this is, this is, look what's happening. They're dancing, they're riffing, they're extemporizing, and the fire comes down. It's like, it's real. They are on. They are on a spiritual high, connecting with everything to everything else, and uh, you know. Again, most of us aren't used to these stories about the rabbis because they're used. You know, rabbis are teach the law or da da da. But 
These, this is what they did. Two. And, um, and it says in Pirkei Avot, do not study Torah with the intent, do not do God's will with the intention of receiving a pras, a prize or a reward. Rather, you must do your maker's will with, without any expectation of, of reward. And that is a spiritual truism, right? Anybody, everybody knows that, oh, here's, a be, here's just a simple example. Anybody who's found themselves in the zone of like just flowing and it's just a beautiful one. As soon as you think, hey, I'm in the zone, it's over, <laughs> right? Um, that's just the way it works. It's, a par- it's, it's one of those very um, subtle and paradoxical, I would say, truths about the desire for this losing yourself in the greater. As soon as you say, oh, this is all about me, you lose it. You, lose it. you can't have them both. And that's why when it says, not my will but thine to God, it's not I'm taking orders from you, God. It's that I want to be connected to you, God, and I know that if I'm willful and think this is about me, I can't do it. So humility becomes not self-denigration, but self... That's why the Hebrew word for it is bitul, which means, sorry, confuse me, nullifying yourself. Bitul means to nullify yourself. But that's what it takes. You have to nullify yourself, your own will, bitul, in order to be part of this greater flow, this greater oneness. So they're experiencing that, Elisha's father, Avuya, is a rich man. He's got these wonderful, he's got the leading lights in his house, and he says, this is awesome. I'm going to dedicate my son to Torah study um, because the power of Torah is so great, he says. Um, and so Avuya has decided that because, he, because that, was the, that was the energy and intention with which he was trained, it didn't last for him because there was personal reward involved. Um, and that actually links up to the other stories. It means that, that he didn't have that deeper... I don't know. I, can't, I don't know if I can put words on it. What an amazing story. Um, yes? Well, now, um, this apostasy seems to have a different character from, say, Spinoza's or Mordecai Kaplan's where everybody had to shun them, where they really were could not be part of the community. Here he's really... Only mayor. Oh, he, can go, he, can, oh. he can go through town on a horse, but everyone, no one's going to talk to him. Oh. So he is being shunned, except mayor will always talk okay. to him. Now I got it. Uh, and that's what makes this such a rich drama. Um, let's keep going. I'm down at the bottom of the page. Alicia, what other verse did you expound? Rabbi Mayer said... God hath made the one corresponding to the other. And Elisha said, what did you say about that? <laughs> Rabbi Meir said, whatever the Holy One created in his world, he created its analog. He created mountains and then created hills. He created seas, then created rivers. Macro and micro. Your teacher, Akiva, would not have spoken that. He would have said, God created the righteous, then the wicked. Let's turn the page over created the Garden of Eden, then created Gehenna, which is, you know, purgatory. 
Thus, each man has two portions assigned to him, a portion in the Garden of Eden and a portion in Gehenna. When a man is declared righteous, he takes by his, his own portion and the portion of another, who by his action forfeited his in the Garden of Eden. When a man is declared wicked, he takes his own portion and the unclaimed portion of a righteous man in Gehenna. This is a very binary view, right? As opposed to the interpretation Mayer gave, that everything is a fractal, that everything as above, so below, you know, mountains and hills, seas and rivers, it's like, it's all, that's, that's a very integrated and holistic view. And uh, Alicia's view in this one is very binary. You're either in heaven or in hell, and that's it. It's either or. Again, that reflects some of the other stories about him, that he couldn't accept the gray zone of, of being alive. Um, I wonder. Let's read the next one. Alicia said, well, what other verse did you expound? I just picture them standing in the marketplace on Shabbos, this guy in a horse. Busy morning. Um, and Alicia wants to stay, because he keeps asking work. Alicia wants to stay, see, but his worldview prevents him. Um, so interesting. Rabbi Meir, what other verse? Rabbi Meir said, gold and glass cannot equal it. Neither shall the exchange thereof be vessels of fine gold. Another verse from Job. So that's not accidental that he's taking from Job. I don't know what this verse means. Um, Alicia says, what did you say about it? Rabbi Meir said, these are the words of Torah. They are as difficult to acquire as vessels of gold or of fine glass, gold, and are as readily, or fine gold, and are as readily destroyed as vessels of glass. It's tenuous. It's like fragile. It is. Alicia said, by God, even as readily as earthenware vessels. Um, how, oh, in other words, the, the words of Torah are as easily destroyed as vessels of glass. And Alicia said, uh, yeah, even like a clay pot. Um, but your teacher of Akiva would not have spoken that. He would have said, and this is interesting. Yeah. This is a whole totally different. As vessels of gold and even vessels of glass can be repaired if broken, so can a disciple of the wise recover his learning if it has dis disintegrated. Mm -hmm. So after all of these, they reversed roles. And Mayer's teaching is like, you can get it, but then it just breaks easy. Maybe psychologically, he stops. He says, I'm, I'm going to stop trying to convince this guy. And then Acher does... I, no, 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 don't stop. Please don't stop. Maybe, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, he's, still, he's still looking for his way back in. So Rabbi Meir takes the cue and says, so you too must come back, Alicia. Alicia says, I can't. Rabbi Meir says, why not? Alicia <laughs> says, I was riding a horse behind the house of study on a day of atonement. That fell on the Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, he's riding a horse on the day before that fell on the Sabbath. And I heard, and I, eating a ham sandwich, <laughs> listening to my radio. And, and, I, and I heard a divine voice reverberating. Return, O backsliding children. 
shuvu b'nai hashovavim. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. Another one, another verse. And accept, and the voice says to him, except for Acher, who knew my strength and yet rebelled against me. Oh, the suffering this guy is in. Um, and so they keep walking. And when Rabbi, uh, uh, um, Alicia's riding his horse and Mary's just walking beside him. I think they may have been walking the whole time. I think that's what's going on because this is, this is, this, this, is, so this is the climax. When Rabbi Meir and Alicia reached the Sabbath limit, okay, in, in Jewish law, you're allowed to walk 2,000 cubits. That's like, you know, a half a mile from your house, from your house as part of your... That's why Orthodox communities put up an A-roof, put up that, uh, that string around their community, so that declares, it's a legal fiction that declares that whole area to be your property, your place. So a town, they said the town's limits extend 2,000 cubits, a half mile out from, the, out from the walls of the town. So they're riding their horse and just walking and doing this incredible conversation. And when they reached the Sabbath limit, Acher said to him, Mayor, turn back, for I have just measured by the paces of my horse. He's measuring. <laughs> it's like you can't take it out of him. Um, that the Sabbath limit extends only thus far. And May replied, well, you too go back. Acher said, haven't I just told you that I have already heard from behind the curtain in heaven, return ye backsliding children, except Acher. <sighs> Nevertheless, Rabbi Meir prevailed upon him and took him into a schoolhouse where Acher said to a child, Recite to me your verse. And the child answered, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Uh-oh. <laughs> Rabbi Meir then took him to another schoolhouse, where Acher said to a child, Recite for me your verse. The child answered, For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Uh-oh, these are the wrong verses. <laughs> Rabbi Meir took him to yet another schoolhouse, where again Acher said to a child, Recite me for, your verse, for me your verse. The child answered, And thou that art spoiled, what doest thou? Thou that clothest thyself, thyself with scarlet, that thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, that thou enlargest thine eyes with paint, in vain dost thou make thyself fair. They seek my life. Jeremiah. And thus Rabbi Meir took Acher to thirteen schools, one after the other, where in like vain all the ch children quoted verses boding evil. When Acher said to the last child, Recite for me your verse, he answered, But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? That child had a speech defect, so it sounded as though he answered, Instead of Vile Rasha, unto the wicked, but unto the wicked he thought he heard Vile Elisha. And to Elisha God says, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? So the boy had a speech defect. At that, Alicia said, had I a knife in my hand, I would have cut him to pieces. I'm not sure what that means. The child? Yeah, I think that's what he means. Uh, he was just terribly upset. This part of the story is tough. Is there a place for him? 
Is there not a place for him? Isn't that an opening? What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, Elisha? Oh. It sounds like an opening, says I. Oh, but unto Elisha, God says, what hast thou to do to declare? Yes, I think you're right. And that infuriates him. After 13 ones confirming his, uh, his despair. And then we read this last part. Uh, so that's basically the cycle of stories about Mayor and Elisha. Um, and it makes me think about the other in a different version of the other, this version of the one who's determined to be alienated, who's determined to be the other, which is a whole different take than what we've been exploring up till now in class. So this is the other within yourself, kind of, not, not the outside person. Okay. Uh-huh, or it's the other within, your, within yourself, yes. Mm-hmm. What part of us is Alicia Benavuya? The part that says, or within your community or within yourself. How, the ambivalence, the desire to belong, and then the, I can't. I mean, boy, that's a modern Jewish story, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's where it's one place to take this discussion. Alicia represents, I mean, I've had people come in the synagogue and look at me like I was about to hit them. You know, it's so weird for me being the rabbi, because I'm, it's like, but there, they have a whole story about why they can't come here or why they're a bad Jew or why I would immediately be judging them. So many people come into synagogue that way. Um, and uh, um, it's epidemic, really. The, 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 the self-hatred, the ambivalence, the, con- the conviction that there's something wrong or that what we are is wrong, right? Because, you know, religion is bad and religion's the source of all the world's problems and a whole story they're telling about that. And uh, um, I think that's why when people get invited to bar mitzvahs here or other things or, high com- or creep into the high holiday tent and they find themselves in tears over and over and over again. I don't think I'm exaggerating if I've heard this hundreds of times in my years here. Uh, uh, that, uh, that they find themselves in tears and they don't know why. They don't have a vocabulary for, what, for, for it. They don't know what happened. But their expectations haven't been met. Something else happened. And uh, they're, in a, they're in a space where they're not being judged and where we're celebrating. I don't know, it's amazing to me. It feels like actually my calling. You know, that's what I've been doing all these years is opening people's hearts that way. And uh, it happens so much. So that's one, one train of thought. The other is to think about the other in ourselves. All the ways we walk into a room, any of us, and write ourselves out immediately as opposed to considering ourselves a portion of humanity. You, you know, that othering may then immediately relate to uh, the other kind of othering that we do in the other direction of deciding who isn't in our group. Um, thoughts, reflections, anybody? That's what I wanted to say.
I'm going to just start talking because I don't know exactly what I want to say, but having been one of those people for a lot of years, um, I feel that pain. I, I don't think that ever goes away because it totally, it's totally connected to the longing that I still feel. As, in, as included or not, as included or not included, as I feel on any given day, um, and that that changes all the time too. Mm -hmm. But I think I have a I have a baseline inclusion. So even when I don't feel included at this point in my life, I know that's just how I feel today, which I didn't have for all the years that I stayed away. Um, and yesterday, it's like I heard this conversation. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to is um, Mark Maron. And I won't explain, if you don't know who he is, I won't explain it. But he, he was interviewing David Mamet. It's a wonderful interview. And Mark Maron is, um, talks a lot about being Jewish. But he's very uncomfortable and he, has, he doesn't really have a place to put it. But he can't put it away. And, and so, and especially when he's speaking to other Jews, he'll just kind of try to find out where they are. And, and David Mamet is now a very committed Jew. Yeah. Um, uh, after a, a, a long um, um, separation as well. And is very articulate. And it was kind of beautiful to to listen to how they played on each other. And so David Mamet in the role of Rabbi Mayer and then, you know, kind of switching roles and, and but the but but I hear, and maybe it's my projection, I don't know, but I hear the longing. I hear the longing from both of them. Um, that it was just such an interesting Oh that's so nice. Julia Boylan introduced me to this four-line poem, what do you call it, a quatrain? Is that what it's called? Um, that, um, called Outwitted, that I've read many times. Um, he, drew he drew a circle that left me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. It's one of those says it all poems. And then I was thinking, while you were talking, about how one of the beauties of being Jewish is that we also see the world from the perspective of the other. You know, as a minority and a, mm -hmm. you know, a, as who've been forced to be the other, that that's an, also a uh, necessary critiquing of the 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 society. Because uh, you also have some some removed from it, so I'm thinking that what we're talking about here is some dynamic interplay of where rather than rigidly defining ourselves as in or out, that we have the kind of the the the, the suppleness and the oh no the the self awareness 
to not be attached to those perspectives, but to utilize them. But to know that everybody's the other at some point, and therefore that's not an excuse or a reason or a rationale for not also knowing that you're home. You're in your home at the same time. So I guess what I'm getting at is uh, the problem of accepting a definition of yourself as the other, as a rigid category um, that prevents you from, your, from fulfilling your longing to be part of something. Everybody carries some of that. Yes, Ellen? Um, in the movie group that we did, um, part of the discussion was um, who had done like Ancestry.com or 23andMe or something and found out a surprise that there might be something that they considered other that was themselves. And oh, well, that's a great outcome of those genetic tests. Yeah. Um, and um, a friend of mine was given um, uh, a, uh, a birthday gift of 23andMe, and he was adopted. And that, those, are, those stories are really interesting of what people find out. But he found out that he was like 40% African-American or African, and, um, and that he was related to Thomas Jefferson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that messes with your head. <laughs> hey, Thomas Jefferson had a mistress that was black. Right. Yes, Sally Hemings, yes. There are many African-Americans who, could, who are his offspring, yeah. Right. Wow. And I just got a great email um, uh, from um, a member who's not Jewish, her husband's Jewish, and she said, I just had to share my 23andMe genetic test with you because um, here's the results. Um, and it was so great. It was like 50% uh, uh, um, I, uh, uh, English, German, you know, that. Uh, 50% Spanish, Italian, you know, or for, for, and 0.3% Ashkenazi Jewish. So that's one third of 1%. She said, I always knew it, I was Jewish. <laughs> it was such a cute email. <laughs> what did you, do you remember what you wanted to say, uh, Gail? Yeah, you said something last, the last class, I think, that I found really powerful and moving. And it was, someone had said something about us in the current political climate and the rise of the right um, feeling increasingly other in the United States. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you picked that up and you went on to talk about how the dogma, the, the understanding in the United States, at least for citizens, okay, is that we are all, there's no other, once you're a citizen, you're an American, there is no other, right? okay? Not within citizenship. And I found it so powerful. I've been, I've been sort of thinking about it off and on all week, because I'm never, and you're talking about the, depending on where you are, the categories, you know, and that there are places where I don't feel other, and other places where, in the United States at this point, I do. Right, right. The, you know, the, the, the social contract is, is in danger of breaking down. That's right. And I have to, so it was so powerful when you said that, that, oh, that's the one I have to keep returning to every mm -hmm. time I feel that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because as Jewish, it isn't going to work. I'm going to feel other. <laughs> That's right. You know, but, right. Thank you. Which is, again, why, I'm such, why I've been a, a follower of Mordechai Kaplan my whole life, really, because he was ready to say out loud, Judaism, as a Jew, we live in two civilizations, the Jewish and the larger civilization, and our job as Jews in the ongoing evolution of Judaism is to take the best of both civilizations and integrate that into what Jewishness is and what Judaism is, and also to be great American citizens and bring the best of Judaism into... And so he, his writings are mid-century, totally inspiring you know, praises of democracy and of pluralistic society and, of, and that Jews, it's good that we're here and America has so much to offer, American uh, civilization has so much to offer Judaism uh, and that's where I, that's my ideology. You know, it's changed, things have changed a lot since uh, I was a kid and I don't know what's going to happen but I'm still, I'm still going to promote that. <laughs> it was very powerful. Oh. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I will, uh, that's why I want to give credit to Mordechai Kaplan and Ira Eisenstein and the people who, found, who developed this articulate approach to how to be a Jew in a democratic country uh, rather than resist it, to embrace it totally. Thank you. Have you all talked about the, there's a book called Semitism? Yes, I the guy. Have you talked about that? No, I don't know the book. Um, oh, I heard. I heard the guy on Fresh Air. Fresh Air. Um, oh, I missed um, that. He's a um, he's a, an editor of the New York Times, but I don't know his name. Jonathan Weissman. He's a um, he was a reporter, congressional reporter. Oh, he wrote an op-ed piece recently. Yes, he wrote uh -huh. the op-ed piece, but it's based on the book, and the book is out. And Terry Gross interviewed him on Monday. Uh, and what's the book about? being Jewish in the United States, because when he, he tweeted a comment um, about a, 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 an article about the, rise, the potential for the rise of fascism in the United States, and he, he was immediately attacked, inundated with all sorts of attacks from anti-Semites, and he was the one who made us aware of the fact that if you see a name with three parentheses around it, that's the anti-Semites' way of showing that the person is Jewish and therefore attacking. And he's got all sorts of, just, just, just for commenting on that article about the rise of fascism. Wow. And being the recipient of all the attacks made him conscious of what it's like to be Jewish in the United States. So his article was anti-Semitism is alive and well in the United States and we can't bury our heads in the sand. And he he lives he obviously lives in DC in the someplace in the metropolitan DC area. And one of the rabbis that he quoted in the in the piece is a rabbi that I know and he said his take was don't talk about them don't go. They, they seek the spotlight. The more you talk about them, the happier they are. And um, he talked to another rabbi who brought up the Jewish law that says if you see evil, it's your obligation to work against it. Uh huh. And that's what he did in the book. And he's, apparently, some chapters are the history of anti-Semitism. Wow. Okay. And it's called Semitism. And what else? 
he started out as a totally secular Jew, and he finds himself coming back in further and further as a result of his exploration. Uh huh. It's so complicated because there's both the there's this there's this there's the fo- there's the force of anti-Semitism, which also makes you wanna. I mean, I uh, re-identify. So there's no way to there's no way to tease out Jewish identity from anti-Semitism. There's just no way to do it. Um, but the goal is to become as aware as possible. As, as, that's my that's my goal, right. so that I'm not just being reactive. You know what I mean? So, so sometime between, like, say, 1960 and five, the two years ago was the golden age where it was anti-Semitism in the United States was hidden. Right, it had been marginalized. It was marginalized, it was under a rock. Right. And you knew that there were people who might personally be anti-Semitic, but they didn't have any connections, they didn't have any power, they didn't have any organization. Right. And if you heard a comment, it was just this one idiot guy who didn't know any better. Right. And there have been, and there have been, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center and others, the ADL and others, have been like on it, hammering on these fringe groups to keep them on the fringe. Right, calling people out on it. And now it's back. And that's what this book is in response to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Gail. They feel that they have permission. Ellen's not done yet. That's it. Right, well, we know they've gotten permission, yeah. It actually began when Obama was elected. I agree. The vast increase in anti Semitic groups and hate crimes. Right, because, yeah, because. Being again, yeah, True. blacks and Jews uh, are in the same and, same and actually, category. Jews had more incidents than blacks. Mm-hmm. I think. I don't. Anyway, yeah, I, I I agree with that. It's I think. Take it I think we are experiencing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Take it back. Not a contest you want to win. Yeah. Well, on a big scale, on the on the on the on the on the big cultural scale, yes, I think Obama's election, which was the the the, what's the word, the fulfillment of a pluralistic identity for America, which is one of the streams of American striving, uh, caused an incredible backlash from the other, under, uh, the, other, the other stream of America as a white Christian nation that enslaved black people. And uh, um, uh, we're, yeah, we're in the midst of that right now. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. But it's not over yet. Game's not over. No, no, no. Yeah. But on the other hand, I was listening to some reporter on MSNBC, and she was trying to describe sort of a a, a mess that she was um, some complicated political thing, and she said, and and they did the whole Megillah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know if she knows right. where that comes from. That's hysterical. Oh, that's great. Um, well, um, I'm so glad I shared these stories with you. I've been wanting to use them as a text in class for so long because they're so rich. Um, and uh, thank you for letting me share them, and they seem to be on topic. Uh, I don't have anything else to say right now, so we can end class a little early unless anybody else uh, uh, wants to take... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just that, you know, to dismiss, as I did before, I mean, the, the, so much of our liturgy and so much of the poem. Oh, this is important. 
says directly, clearly, or implies that God will somehow protect us in this life here. And that's clearly not true. Clearly not true. And when we first begin to encounter that, it's quite devastating if we really go through that. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and to dismiss it kind of as simply childish is, isn't fair. And I can hear his pain in these stories. Uh -huh. I, I don't mean you were unfair, but I mean I was unfair. Oh, okay. okay. Um, that, that's all. I just want to say it's very real, and many of us struggled with it for many years, because you just don't easily get to, well, it's a mystery, and I don't understand it. Because it doesn't include necessarily, and everything will turn out all right. Nope, nope, nope. It doesn't. Nope. <laughs> you know, it's like anything can happen, and that's the way it is. Okay. That's the way it is. Um, and yet, and it's very we old. have faith. Well, but many of us lose it at that point. That's it's right. Very, and it, it's a legitimate loss, I think. It is, it is. I'm, con I'm describing it as a developmental stage, uh, potentially. I don't even think of it as a developmental stage. I think that's where I'm disagreeing. Uh, what I'm saying is, if one is lucky and somehow has these other moments of glimpses that maybe it's okay, in some way that we don't get, but it's okay. Ah, uh, yes, nicely put. But if we don't get that ever, we're stuck with, which I think is where so many secular Jews are, post-Holocaust. Yes. You know, yeah. uh -huh. because, because there was a Holocaust, therefore there is no God. Hmm. That was Jonah's parents. Yeah, I mean, because they haven't had a glimpse. Of, how could they say it's somehow it's okay? Uh, I mean, uh -huh. you know, I don't, I'm not comfortable saying that anyway. It's not okay, right? Right, but I mean, in some mystical fashion, it's okay. And that, but I can't, yes. But that's only because I've had glimmers. Okay? Mm -hmm. If I hadn't had those glimmers, mm -hmm. there's no way I could be here. Yeah. I did not, I did, thank you. I really appreciate the way you say that. I certainly in no way meant to reduce it to like uh, a developmental stage yeah. that you should, should get through. But um, I, mean, I still think of it as a, as, yeah, as a, as a level of development. Yes, I understand. Yeah. I just need a little clarification. I'm sorry. Are you reacting to? I missed the very first part of what you said, like the disappointment of not of knowing that there is no protection, God's yes. protection. I'm talking about the stories in here. Yeah. And where we the secondary story, not the not the part of the story, but the others. And the first time we really get it, whatever the incidents are, and it may be a lot of different things, that there really is no protection. That whatever the liturgy seems to say. No, and that's what causes the loss of faith. Yes. I want to say that the rabbis grapple with this in great depth. And there's many pages of powerful discussion about why do the righteous suffer. And their conclusions are multiple, right? They don't, they don't have an answer to the question. And they, so they take the Torah to task in that regard. And the rab rabbinic conclusion is we don't know why the righteous suffer. I know that now. And uh, so we're not the first ones to wrestle with this. My solution, yeah. as, as a, you know, a modern, postmodern Jew, is to, as I've described, to read the Torah as sacred myth, not as um, historical verity, so that um, in this story there is a power in the universe 
that is um, uh, that is depicted as God, who uh, protects the oppressed against the the oppressor. You know, it's like, and that for me. So therefore, I don't take it literally. That's how I deal with it as a as a as a modern. That's how I deal with it. There are so many ways to grapple with it. Uh, thank you. Isn't yes, it Steve. Amazing that the uh, our tradition has preserved these stories. Yes. I mean, it would have been just as easy to write it out altogether. Yes. <laughs> and do you think it's an accident that Mayer is quoting from Job and Ecclesiastes? These are kind of two fringe books, also. Two of the like two of the books, books where God's the wisdom books, but they're two, they're two of the books where question this whole yeah. yeah Job and that's excellent. Job and Ecclesiastes are two books which take to task the whole idea that there's a God of justice. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they are like critiques of the whole rest of the Torah. Right. So yeah, he's there. The, the so rabbis know. writing these stories because I see these. I see again. I see Mayer and Alicia Benavidez as kind of archetypes that the rabbis then write store that later later writers develop stories about are through these stories questioning their own faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, that's that's what makes Judaism so rich for me is that these stories are here, they're our literary tradition, not just the Bible, and not just what the, what the high priest says about the Bible, but what we have to say about all those themes. Yeah, I agree with you, Steve. So that this is actually a very adult religion, when you know what it is. That's you know, what I mean. Right. The more adult it is. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean. Yep. It's an adult religion. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not giving us easy answers. It's it, there's a lot of gray. We're immersed in debate, um, and these rabbis get together and uh, like great jazz musicians and use the scripture. See when it's listen to this when it says they took words from the five books of Moses, then the prophets, then the writings. They're not doing a continuous narrative. They have they know the whole musical oeuvre. And they are riffing. They're, they're pulling from here and there, and they are using words to elevate themselves. They're, they're really jazz masters, you know, who, uh, and the greatest ones are the ones who you go, wow. You know, so if you go to a Jewish, a, a very, if you go to a very Jewish gathering, uh, um, in, in Israel right now, there's this exclamation people make, Psh, they do this, Psh, it, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> and if somebody puts together great words of Torah, everyone goes, Psh. <laughs> you know, that's current, that's current right now. <laughs> Judaism is not for 50, like old age. <laughs> so I think an adult, an adult religion where every level is represented, yeah, absolutely. And where easy answers are, are what you give at a certain time in life, but not what you look for at another time of life. And the idea is to throw candy at people until they're ready to hear. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, at the church on uh, Sunday, the Oaxacan family was doing some of their festive folk dances, and they had these baskets, and they tossed us apples with flags in them, which is what we traditionally what happens at Simchat Torah, right? And then they had candy that they were strewing all over the room from their basket. It was, it was fun, <laughs> but it reminded me of like, you know, what we do. So there you go. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, wait, wait, wait. Ah, right. please introduce Libby. <laughs> <laughs>